Hi everyone and welcome to Monday Morning 8am, a podcast from Firms Consulting where we distill the insights from the noise out there. If you would like to receive the newsletter version of this podcast, which usually contains links and other exhibits, you can go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo. As always, this podcast is put out for our Firms Consulting Insiders and Firms Consulting Slides members, but we also make it available to the broader community to help them in their pursuit of changing the world. So let's go through some of the big stories we are seeing in the news over the last week. Well, many things are happening. It's been quite an eventful start to the year. But of course, the rise of COVID means that we've seen a huge trend over a very short period of time take over, galvanize, and basically capture the entire world. And corporate strategy, by and large, is about how one identifies and responds to trends. It's about knowing when your business should find a trend, know when to jump in, know when to ride that trend through the release of products and services and so on, and know when to jump out. History is littered with examples of companies that saw a big trend, whether it's social media, whether it's over-the-top streaming, whether it's virtual reality, whether it's electric cars, companies that saw it, companies that went in early, but ultimately they were unable to ride the trend or they went in before the trend had reached mainstream status. Therefore, their investment never really panned out. Other times they went in early, they waited it out until the trend gained momentum but someone came along and benefited from the trend to a greater extent. In surfing, the first surfer is not always the one who's going to be able to ride that big wave. So the question becomes, how do you identify trends? You know, if you extend this to pure strategy, and you look at the work of Clayton Christensen, he likes to say that disruptors are very hard to identify because they are usually ignored in the market. They ignored such that incumbents stay working with the established clients and the disruptor picks up all these little clients at the bottom who nobody wants to serve and slowly starts adapting and improving. And as they adapt and improve, they start off picking off all of the bigger clients. And by the time the incumbent notices this newcomer, it's too late. But the issue becomes, how do you identify this trend? How do you know something is worth pursuing? And what I want to talk about here is that trends can originate in different places. But there are usually two ways they originate. There was an article recently that I read about a uh, French restaurant that received a Michelin star. And the reason it's a big deal is because it's a vegan restaurant. And while vegan restaurants have received Michelin stars, which is the highest rating a restaurant can receive. It's the greatest accolade a restaurant can receive. While non-French restaurants have received Michelin stars for vegan menus, it's the first time that a French restaurant has received this. And it's even more of a big deal because the restaurant that received it, one of their signature dishes is the fact that they serve a type of dish that is made from the enlarged liver of a duck. But they serve the vegan version of this, but the restaurant is located in the location or the region of France that is known for producing this liver. Now, this is an example whereby a premium establishment like the Michelin Committee confers 
a Michelin star on a vegan restaurant and therefore helps make veganism more cool. This is where the establishment is anointing that something is cool, something is worth having, something is luxurious, something is part of the mainstream. We see this very, very often. If a large company adopts something as a best practice, the mass market will follow. That's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it, or the other way of how it occurs is maybe a better way of saying it, is that the establishment never sees it coming, but change bubbles through at the grassroots level. Let's take an example of this. Let's look at hip hop. The hip hop music genre has exploded recently, but that's not really fair. It's always been there for the last few decades. But the difference is it's only now being noticed by establishment brands or what we would like to call the establishment. I mean, 10 years ago, would you see a hip hop music video or hip hop music being used in mainstream advertising? Would you see hip hop symbols being used in mainstream ad campaigns? You would not see that. So this is an example whereby a trend was created outside of the establishment. But because it became so ingrained in culture, it became so popular, for lack of a better word, that the establishment had to then partner and work with hip-hop brands. And therefore, they will just take the brand even further. So as you are thinking about what are the trends that are affecting the world, one of the biggest mistakes I see in strategy in every country I've worked in for every type of client is they will go to an established elite market research company or consulting firm and they will ask them to tell us, tell us what are the trends. Now here's the mistake. If the establishment, which is the elite consulting firms and the elite market research agency, is unaware of the trend, but the trend may be real, they'll never put it in their report in the first place. Many years ago, I remember listening to an interview with um, one of the world's most famous fashion designers. And they asked this guy, how do you know what is going to be important in the world in a few years? And he said, well, one of the, one of the most important things I do is twice a year, I go to the Ginza Fashion District of Japan in Tokyo. And I just spend time uh, drinking coffee and walking around and watching what young girls think is cool. Because according to him, and, and he's a very successful designer, they tend to set the fashion trend of Asia, which parts of it then get absorbed and exported into the West. And he said that nobody is going to be able to commission a report telling me what a trend is going to be in two to three years because nobody even knows it's coming. So what I want you to think about here is that as you as a business try to identify trends, there's two types of trends you can identify. One is trends that are already there and trends that are coming. Trends that are coming can be split into two parts. Trends that will be created by the establishment and trends that will be forced on the establishment by a grassroots campaign. And trends that are created through the grassroots, well, you've got to keep your ear on the ground and see what people are doing, listening to, reading, eating. And you can't get that in a report. You have to keep your ear on the ground and see what's happening out there. So the other big, big topic that everyone's talking about is this is the way, the rise of Reddit traders who through a sequence of collective actions forced a number of hedge funds, short sellers, a large number of them, to lose a ton of money 
and in many cases receive a bailout from other hedge funds. Now, if you are to think of this purely in financial terms, what's happening in the financial services industry, you probably will miss some of the deeper implications here. What we're seeing here is simply the next evolution in democracy. If you go right back to the signing of the Magna Carta, which is regarded as the single most important document in advancing democracy in the world, if you go back to the original Magna Carta that was signed by the English lords and kings, it's not such an impressive document. Symbolically, it's impressive because of what it led to. But at the time, it's not as if the average peasant in England or the countries that made up the collective UK or what was the collective UK then. It's not as if every peasant and every farmer had the right to vote. No. The Magna Carta passed more power to the lords from the king and the ruling class to the lords. But by and large, the average person had no power and no ability to vote. The ability for the average person to vote in the UK only came about somewhere in the mid-1800s. Women only got the right to vote in the 1900s. So what I'm trying to show you here is that the principles of democracy start off as a set of principles. But then over years, sometimes decades, sometimes centuries, often centuries, they start dissipating into society and those principles become actions. So there's a very big insight here. What we saw happening with the Reddit traders is not an anomaly. It's the future of finance whereby we will expect to see more of average people, also known as the voting citizen, have an ability to exercise their right to use their money themselves without relying on some more educated, I'll put that in inverted commas, professional making financial decisions for them. But it's not just going to be in the world of finance. It's also going to happen in the world of democracies. We think of voting now being an exercise in democracy, but is it really an exercise in democracy? Or is it an exercise in voting for someone who will make a decision for you? Or is the future of a democracy one like the Swiss model, whereby they constantly hold plebiscites? So in, in the Swiss model, they hold a lot of events whereby the entire population votes on key decisions. That's an unusual model of democracy whereby in most countries you vote for an elected official once every four or two or whatever the number of years is, and that person makes the key decision for you. Think about each part of the world, in each sector. Think about what would happen if the principles of democracy whereby the consumer, the person who should have the power, is able to wield that power. And think about what that means as technology makes it more possible. We see this in financial services, and it's definitely not an anomaly, whereby the average consumer is going to have more tools to move the market. Why is it only someone that went to an Ivy League university and owns a hedge fund can bet and trade? Why is it only they can take a short position? Why is it only they can take a put on a stock? What stops the average person from doing it? And the common refrain is that, well, the average person is not smart. Well, I have two responses to that. One is democracy should not be awarded to someone just because they're smart. Democracy is a right, the ability to make a decision because you exist. Democracy is not about the best answer. It's about the answer that the majority of the people want, even if it's the worst answer. 
The second point to this is that who says just because you're educated, you're smart. We looked at what happened with um, the Reddit traders on GameStop and so on. And it's easy to say, well, they caused a huge spike in the stock. It's a bad decision. But think of elected, educated people who put into power every day who make big bets on which sectors to open up to trade, which trade agreements to join, which parts of the economy to grow, which parts of the economy not to subsidize. Those are bets as well. They are, those are bets that play off over four, five, six, eight years, but they are bets. And we know for a fact that some bets fail and some bets are successful. Some countries do very well when they're elected, usually educated officials make good bets. Many countries do very badly. But if educated leaders in finance and politics can make good bets and bad bets, why do we only notice when the average population makes a bad bet? The deep insight here is that the principles of democracy are well known, but the practice of democracy is still being pushed out into the world. And the principles of democracy are not just about how you vote for an elected official, it's about how you choose to vote to make every decision in your life. And the most important decision is how you will spend your hard-earned money. If you're in a business and you have consumers, you've got to ask yourself, how would my consumers, how would my customers act if they could make a decision on a daily basis through a click of a button, either to work with me or work with someone else? Imagine you live in a country whereby your Power is provided by a monopoly and you have no chance of changing that. Or your telephone service is provided by a monopoly or your healthcare is provided by a monopoly. If I was that company, I'd be very scared because as soon as competition came in, a lot of customers would leave. But it's not enough because as technology evolves, it's going to be much easier for consumers to vote on a daily basis on how they want to spend their money. And the insight here is that how is your company leveraging the movement of customers being able to practice the principles of democracy? And think about what technology is going to do in 5 or 10 or even 15 years. Because what we're seeing now with a mass shift in power towards consumers in finance is only the beginning. Yes, it will be regulated. Yes, there will be rules, but it won't change this. And it's not about education. That's the mistake. That's the, the, the big mistake being made, whereby you, people would say, well, customers are not educated. It's besides the point. If someone has the ability to make a decision and someone has the tools to make a decision, they're going to make the decision. It's not a question of removing that power because they may make the wrong decision. That's the opposite of democracy. It's not about dumb money. That's always the refrain made when consumers make a decision, they're not smart. Consumers are very smart. They make mistakes like anyone else. They get emotional like anyone else. But they are certainly within their rights to make the decisions they want to make. And of course, what you will find is that a lot of these guys who are making these decisions, they're not people that have poorly conceived strategies. Some of them are very smart. A lot of them are smart. In fact, some of them are so smart that traditional hedge funds are probably mining their feeds for what the industry calls institutional flow, basically strategies to borrow and use. The next big story we're reading about is, of course, linked to China, as always. But this is themed defense is not a strategy. And it comes through a um, big decision made recently whereby Panasonic, I think it was, 
decided that it's going to exit certain parts of the renewables value chain, manufacturing of solar panels and solar cells, I think it was, because it cannot compete with low-cost Chinese providers. Now, I've been a, in consulting my, my entire career, all the way from business analyst to senior partner. I've worked with many, many companies. And it's very common, I've seen this with Western companies. When I say Western companies, I mean companies that are usually in the United States, the UK, Australia, Western Europe, uh, New Zealand, Singapore, Japan. I may be missing one or two, but that's generally considered the Western world. But what normally happens is that when a low-cost provider arrives, with great fanfare, the company announces that we've made a decision to create value by exiting the low-end part of the value chain and focusing on the high-end part of the value chain. And of course, their share price goes up and everyone gets happy about it. But there are some important things to consider. For one, they didn't make the decision. It was made for them. In almost all cases, they don't have a choice. It's not as if they've uh, did something so philanthropic. They've made almost a charitable donation to the low-cost provider and they can have a tax write-off. No, they've had no choice. They were bleeding money because they could not compete. A better way of saying it is that we have no way of winning in this market, so we just have to leave because we're going to lose everything. It's not that we've made a decision to exit. The decision has been made for you. You have no choice. The next big insight. When you leave this market, in this case, the value side of the solar panel manufacturing, you're leaving a market that has customers, that has paying customers. So when you're exiting a market, you're leaving it to the incumbents, or at least the, 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 the well, they are the incumbents now. Once you leave, you're leaving it to the companies that stay behind, in this case, the Chinese manufacturers, to have very little competition and be able to extract profits from that market. And the question becomes, what are they going to do with those profits? Which comes to the next insight, the third insight, which is there's a very big difference between exiting the low-end side of solar panels and retreating because that's what they're doing versus stopping the low-cost manufacturers from advancing. Think about that for a second. When you exit the low-end side of the market, you are basically pulling your troops back. You are retreating. You're retreating so far up the value chain that you maybe can't see the low-cost competitors, and maybe you'll forget about them, but they haven't disappeared. They're still there, right? It's a little bit like Game of Thrones. Just because nobody could see the dragon lady and her dragons doesn't mean they were not trying to find a ship, trying to get an army and cross that ocean and come and eat everyone. A big mistake companies make when they withdraw or forced to withdraw from a portion of the value chain is that that's a, that's a tactical and a strategic retreat but they have nothing to blunt their enemy. If anything, they've basically given more energy and fuel to their enemy because the enemy now has a market with fewer competitors and they can then use that profit to stage the attack on the more valuable part of the value chain, which is what is going to happen. Every time you seed ground on the low end part of a value chain, unless you've blunted the competition, you've simply given them a reservoir of cash to fund the assault on the high-end part of the value chain. And that assault will come. In every industry I've worked in, every company I've worked in, it always comes. You can't avoid it. And that's really the circle of life, isn't it? The circle of life is you start by creating some kind of product. It attracts competitors. Unless you have a cost advantage you can play, you've got to move up the value chain to the more valuable parts of the value chain. But you can't stay there forever because the guys at the low end, they see where the value lies and they keep marching up. 
And eventually you have to exit the value chain or keep creating so much value that you stay ahead of the low cost players. You always keep them low cost. But at some point they're gonna figure out how to catch you and they're going to catch you, which means you either have to create more value or you have to exit the value chain in total. And that's the deep insight there. The next big theme we're reading about is really a question. And the question is, is oil, coal, and gas dead? Because if you read the, any newspaper you read, you don't have to read, you can even listen to things. Any pundit, any forecaster will tell you oil, coal, and gas are dead. But the reality is they're probably not dead and they're probably far from dead. And there's a reason for this. The balance of power in the world has shifted. Growth today comes from Asia. We may not see it, we may not know about this sitting in a nice office in Boston, New York, London, Los Angeles, but the balance of power has shifted. Today, if we say in the West, coal is dead, we need to get our institutional investors to withdraw their equity holdings in coal, oil, and gas companies. We could do that. We probably could do that. A better thing to do is to actually continue investing in oil, coal, and gas companies and forcing them to become carbon neutral because that is really the goal of climate change policy. But it's not going to matter anymore, does it? Because if Indonesia, Vietnam, China, India, the major growth markets of the world today need energy, they're obviously, being smart policy planners that they are, they know that having a clean carbon neutral environment makes sense and they are making good decisions in that direction but of course they need energy and there's only so much energy they can get from carbon neutral sources and it's not possible they're going to get all the sources of energy they need from carbon neutral sources that they can which means they're going to continue relying on oil gas and coal for a very very large part of the future whether it's because they need those energy sources or they need them as feedstock for things like manufacturing of steel. The deep insight here is that previously when we made a decision in the West, we forgot that the underlying assumption which turned out to be true is that the decisions made in the West set the demand pace for the world and set the global standard. But that is no longer the case. If growth or the majority of growth shifts to a new part of the world, that part of the world sets the pace for the world. It sets the standard for the world. The entire Western world could phase out coal, oil, and gas. It would make a big impact, but it wouldn't lead to the end of coal, oil, and gas. And that's something to think about as we think about climate change policies. We have to distinguish between what we want to happen and what is really going to happen. We may really want something to happen, but we have to put in place policies for what is really going to happen. My final note is based on many of the discussions I have with clients in our executive coaching programs. We have clients all over the world who we train, and they, and they come across from a wide spectrum. Some of them have no business backgrounds, but they're in senior positions in large, major multinational companies. Some of them lead multi-billion dollar family-owned businesses in Asia and Latin America. Others are more mid-level. Others have worked their way up. They may not have an MBA, but they know what they're doing. I'm going to tell you a story that's going to articulate a very important insight. When someone tells me they don't know business and they want to learn more about business or they want to take two years off to do an MBA. When I lived in Toronto, 
I always used to go to the Chinese markets uh, and I'd always go to the same Chinese store because I don't like very busy supermarkets. And I also like to know where the layout of things are. And because I don't go often, I need a place that's predictable. I need to know that the food I want arrives on a certain day. So I don't make a trip on the wrong day and have to visit many different markets because that's just tiring. So I always used to go to the same place. It wasn't the biggest market. It was very clean. And what I liked about that market is that there's this little old lady who ran this market, stooped, probably in her 70s. And unlike most markets, there wasn't a lot of there was pricing on the products, yes, but there wasn't always pricing on the products because, for example, if you wanted fresh Chinese lime, for example, and it arrived on that day, she didn't have time, and her team didn't have time to put the prices on. But she'd be standing on a should be not standing, sitting on a stool in the back, and if you picked up something and raised it and showed it to her, she'll tell you the price. She knew the business very well. But one thing that's very interesting about this lady is. One time I went there to buy seafood and I like certain type of crab from Thailand and I couldn't find it because for some reason the, the brand I liked wasn't available. So there was another brand there which I was just too expensive for me anyway. So I didn't want to buy it. And she, she sees me all the time and I picked up the crab and I was going to leave to go to another store which I know has it but I don't go there often because it's too busy. And this lady asked me, you know, why are you leaving? You always buy this. And I said, well, the prices are different. It's too expensive. And she said, how much do you want to pay for it? And I told her, this is the price in the other place. And she said, okay, you can take it for that price. Now, why, why do I tell the story? Because when you look at this lady in a store, it's not very impressive. It's a pretty rundown store. It's clean, but it's not that impressive. She doesn't you know, wear nice clothing. She, I think I've seen her in the same brown outfit every day. I've ever visited this place. But there was a time I was walking in the evening, maybe around six o'clock, seven o'clock in summer, and I was walking past her store, but a little bit ahead because there's an alleyway to get to the back of her store, and I saw this stunning black Mercedes come out of the driveway, and I'm admiring this beautiful car. It's shiny. It looks like it's been well taken care of. It's, it's new. It's an S-Class Mercedes, which is a top-of-the-range Mercedes. And I'm admiring this kind of look at who's driving it. It's this little old lady driving an S-Class Mercedes. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, it's unlikely she has a business degree. It's unlikely she's trained, been trained in business. But she knows enough about her business that she can change the prices when she talks to a customer and still make a profit. Not just a profit, she makes a good enough living so that she drives an S-Class AMG Mercedes in black. If I had to speak to this lady the way I spoke to a fellow partner or the CEO of a Fortune 500 company using the language I use with them, I'd probably confuse this lady. If I start talking about marginal cost curves, net profit margin, elasticity, she'd be confused. I would be surprised if she knew what I was talking about. But she understands business. This is the very deep insight that I try to get all executive clients to understand. You understand business. If you grew up in the West, well, if you grew up anywhere in the world that has money, you understand business. You know how to make how to do a business deal. You know to buy low, sell high. You know how cash flow works. You know how income statements work. It's an intuitive thing for humans to understand business. But what normally happens is that we then start working with people and using training that speaks a different language from us. So that when we 
start using this resource and we don't understand what's being told to us, we say, I don't understand business, but that's not true. You understand business. It's just that you don't understand the language this resource is using to interact with you. If, for example, I have, I have a, let's say, a background in physics. If I read a paper on thermodynamics and heat transfer in English, it would make perfect sense to me. But if I read that same or a similar paper in German, it would make no sense to me. But that doesn't mean I don't understand physics. It means I just don't understand German. Now, this is one of the biggest, most important insights that I try to pass on to executive coaching clients. If you don't understand something, it's not that you don't understand business. Maybe you don't understand the language that is being used to describe business in that particular case. Because the odds are very high if the person you're interacting with spoke the language of business that you spoke, you would understand it and get it very quickly. So when I speak to executive coaching clients, when I do Monday morning, 8 a.m., I don't speak strategy terms and strategy terminology that I would use with uh, someone who knows that language. I use a simplified language, but I'm still delivering the same insights. As you go through life, and as you struggle to understand certain concepts, don't think you don't understand business. Don't think you don't understand leadership. You just don't understand the language that is being used at that point in time. And you shouldn't feel bad about that. If you don't understand the language, learn business or learn what you want to learn by finding someone who speaks your language. But the odds are very high. You do understand strategy. You do understand business. You do understand leadership. But you shouldn't feel bad if maybe you need a translator every now and again. Don't be held back because the medium you're using, the instructor you are using, speaks in a way that you don't understand. It's okay to be someone who, who has a different language of business. At the end of the day, if you're successful in business, that's what makes you good at business. Whether you can talk about contribution margins, elasticity curves, and all the fancy analysis we do, means very little. It's nice if you could do it, but it's not why you're learning about leadership and business. You're learning to be a leader. And don't hold yourself back if you face this obstacle. As always, I look forward to speaking to you and I'll be back next week, Monday at 8 a.m. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.